Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. This was really one stunning week of compliance stories and ethical failures. Of course, the Walmart FCPA settlement leads off this week's stories, but we also had the absolute uh, ethical train wreck of KPMG. We take a deep dive into that. We take a look at the role of the WTO in global anti-corruption enforcement. Banks continue to behave badly, and they're getting continually and upgradingly spanked for it. Navex Global publishes its first-of-a-kind ethics and compliance benchmark report. What are some of the data security and data privacy issues from using Slack? Designing an ethical company is easy, so says Jeff Kaplan. What are negligence and willfulness, and why are they different legal standards? Dylan Toker Jones joins the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. Uh, welcome, Dylan, to the compliance space. Why does one size not fit all when it comes to working with monitors? We review my five-part podcast series sponsored by Ascent Compliance this week. We look forward to two speeches I'm giving uh, upcoming, and uh, we uh, take a deeper dive into Walmart. So lots to discuss. I know you will enjoy it and find it incredibly interesting. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and now a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 159 for the week ending June 21, 2019. Originally entitled the KPMG Train Wreck Edition, now double monikered with the Walmart Settlement Edition. So, with uh, KPMG and Walmart in the news for uh, two of the biggest ethical train wrecks in recent memory, Jay, we had kind of a plethora of stories this week. So, uh, you want to just jump right into it? Yeah, we'll do 1A and 1B. And 1A is the Walmart uh, matter, and on uh, today, Thursday, the company agreed to pay the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission an aggregate of $282 million to settle allegations that have violated the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act by paying an intermediary in Brazil for help with obtaining construction permits and having weak anti-corruption internal controls in Brazil, China, India, and Mexico. In the criminal action, Walmart paid $138 million. Its Brazil subsidiary, Walmart Brasilia, agreed to plead guilty to violating the FCPA accounting standards, and Walmart entered into a three-year NPA non-prosecution agreement 
with the Department of Justice and agreed to retain an independent corporate monitor for two years. In the SEC civil action, Walmart paid $144.7 million, and they settled this action with the SEC rather through an internal administrative order. So we've been watching and living this one ever since about December 2011 when this was going to hit the New York Times. And I think last week we were talking about you don't want to have your story be above the fold in the right-hand side. Um, the, the government said that even though the company spent a lot of money on remediation, maybe close to a billion dollars with, uh, you know, revamping its compliance program and conducting the investigation, but they still felt that the Walmart transgressions were egregious enough uh, to review to receive a monitor, and I think that's something interesting that we'll be looking at, um, especially because when I was just going through some articles this afternoon, and when this initially came out, certain people were prognosticating that the Walmart settlement would make it a top ten all-time settlement, and that's before we ever had Odebrecht or any of the other Brazilian companies on our radar. Uh, then it appears that people were thinking more like 700 or 500 million dollars, which is something that Walmart could make up in several days. And since last uh, October, we've known the number to be about 282. So I'm sure this will keep the pundits busy. Uh, any initial thoughts you wanted to throw out, Tom? So uh, a couple of things. The first one was that it was indeed the New York Times who broke the story of the corruption in Mexico, but it turns out that Walmart had actually self-disclosed the corruption in Brazil previous to its uh, new, to the New York Times story. Uh, the corruption in Mexico was well known within the organization, so query, why wasn't that self-disclosed uh, to the Department of Justice uh, as well? The other thing was, um, let me see if I can actually pull up the quote. Matt Kelly, uh, not only the coolest guy in compliance, but um, turns out he is uh, actually a da financial data geek as well. And he ran the numbers, and he has said, based upon Walmart's uh, $10.33 billion in annual revenue, it can pay for this fine in a little less than five hours of sales. Uh, even if we include the investigative costs, et cetera, uh, and estimate the total cost at 10 times that fine, the uh, <clears throat> fine and penalty would be a total of $2.82 billion, and Walmart could cover that in two days. So uh, perhaps a little discrepancy there um, in terms of uh, the overall amount of money Walmart makes, but that's not what fines and penalties are based on. They're based on the co conduct of the parties. And in the um, plea agreement, there is the uh, standard U.S.S.G. Uh, U.S. Sentencing Guidelines calculation of um, culpability, and interestingly, Jay, uh, Walmart only received uh, two points for cooperation and with the investigation, clearly demonstrating recognition and affirmative acceptance of criminal responsibility for its conduct, and it could receive up to five points off. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. And then further in the same document, uh, when it gave uh, the uh, reasons for the discounts, uh, 
So uh, uh, off the minimum sentencing guidelines, and if you recall from the uh, corporate enforcement policy, even if a company doesn't self-disclose and Walmart did not <clears throat> in the context of Mexico, it can still receive up to 50% off uh, the minimum uh, fine through remediation and cooperation. And it received only 20% from uh, its Mexican operation and 25% from Brazil, India, and China. So clearly the uh, Department of Justice was not satisfied with the uh, conduct of Walmart in terms of the uh, investigation. It, it pointed out that Walmart did not deconflict and that Walmart uh, was not forthcoming with documents, at least to the uh, tune of the Department of Justice's liking. So um, pretty clearly the um, um, Walmart didn't meet th those components of the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, I've now taken a very quick pass on the documents, and I didn't really see anything that talked about the new FCPA court, corporate enforcement policy. Obviously, the conduct here occurred uh, as far back as 1999, I think, uh, at least referenced 1999. Uh, so it preceded the uh, FCPA corporate enforcement policy announced in November 2017 by quite a bit, but never... Uh, it didn't. Uh, we've had other cases uh, after the uh, implementation of the corporate enforcement policy that the department referenced and used as its guidelines. So, uh, perhaps a lot, a lot of questions. Uh, very detailed statement of facts and the conduct that uh, I'm sure uh, the pundocracy, including the FCPA monitor and the compliance evangelist, will be uh, weighing in on uh, as we go forward. But uh, one of the biggest cases, uh, because you have the world's biggest retailer, and uh, I, I do want to acknowledge Walmart for whatever its faults may have been, spending $900 million in pre-settlement <clears throat> investigative costs and remediations. And I think they have really they've got a management in there now that really uh, uh, supports the compliance effort. Uh, they swept out the old management. Uh, the, they resigned, basically. Uh, or retired. So they've got a management in there that clearly uh, is concerned about doing business ethically and doing business in compliance with the FCPA. But Jay, um, as big as this case was, and it certainly was big, uh, we actually, I think, had an equally large uh, earthquake in the world of ethics and compliance earlier this week. And that involved the Securities and Exchange Commission enforcement action against KPMG. And this was, uh, first of all, I have to give a huge shout out to our colleague Francine McKenna over at MarketWatch. She wrote just a great piece uh, on this. It's not simply great because it quoted me and Matt, but it's great in terms of her research looking at the history of KPMG and some other similar incidents uh, that the SEC's brought enforcement actions. But this was the case that we were all aware of where uh, certain high-ranking partners at the firm had uh, uh, bribed and or extorted uh, PCAOB employees to find out information on the audit schedule <clears throat> where the PCAOB would test uh, KPMG audits. And uh, this uh, has been going on for quite some time. Uh, the auditors uh, uh, had been all fired. There were five of them in total, four from KPMG, one from the PCAOB, one, or excuse me, uh, one went from the PCAOB and was employed at KPMG. 
Two pled guilty, two went to trial and were found guilty. One is uh, still awaiting trial. But that really was only the first part, and we didn't know about the second part. And this second part, I thought, was the far bigger scandal. And the second part was uh, a large number, or some number, I should say, of uh, KPMG auditors, including senior partners in charge of public company audits, cheated on internal tests related to mandatory ethics, integrity, and compliance training, sharing answers with other partners and junior staff members to help them obtain passing scores. But it also related to specific testing around or or training around auditing. And uh, not only did they... uh, I don't know if you were in a fraternity, but fraternities will often have a file on professors with uh, prior tests and answers, and those get passed around. This was not simply that. Uh, This was taking uh, mandatory training mandated by the government because of deficiencies in prior audits and uh, uh, sharing those answers. And second of all, they actually changed the test score parameters. So uh, after doing these studies, online courses, the KPMG employees were required to receive a 70, grade of 70 or above to pass. Well, they lowered that uh, manually in the testing protocols of the software somehow. And uh, I mean, Matt Kelly reported they lowered it to as low as 25. And so that's a level of intentional, willful cheating uh, that goes really beyond anything that uh, we were aware of before. And you have to remember, this is a company charged with basically the integrity of financial statements. And as I told Francine, if they are willing to lie, cheat, and steal um, to uh, the PCAOB and to the SEC, um, what are they willing to do to please clients and generate more profits? I mean, this conduct is so egregious, detailing a culture which is completely unmoored from any ethical foundation. And any company using KPMG as an auditor, I think, has to ask some very serious questions about not only the quality of the services they receive from KPMG, but even the foundation of those services, i.e., the audited financial statements. So, um, as you can tell, I came in hot on this one, and uh, uh, I thought it was just a, a huge, huge ethical scandal. So, Tom, I don't don't know if you uh, have given any thought to this, but I'm not sure if it's a quote from you or Matt talking about, you know, how do you um, how do you penalize a company like KPMG? You can't put them out of business like Arthur Anderson was put out because you're going to go from the big four to the big three. But what kind of punishment would make a difference for the company and how do you restore its, uh, you know, its reputation? Well, Jay, in addition to what you raised accurately uh, about Arthur Anderson and its demise, um, think about it this way. Uh, If KPMG goes away, where are all those auditors going to go? They're going to go to other auditing firms, and then they're going to infect those firms with their uh, ethical values as well. So putting KPMG out of business is uh, difficult, if not wrong, for a lot of reasons. Uh, as to what you do going forward, um, at first I thought you have to get the biggest, baddest monitor there is who comes in there with a club uh, weighted and weighed and waved by someone as big as Paul Bunyan. Um, 
But then I thought, well, you know, if you do that, can you really scare people into to doing things ethically and with integrity? Uh, you've got to have a change at the top, and you've got to have a board at the top who says, you know, we're going to do it not only right, we're going to do it every I dotted and every T crossed till we win back the trust of our clients. And the, the ultimate sanction will be in the marketplace. I mean, uh, like I, uh, I'm just uh, aghast at this, and I just wonder how a company could have any uh, confidence that the audited financial statements are correct. And uh, because what if they are audited by one of these uh, audit partners who did so poorly on the test that they had to drop the bar so that they can get a passing grade? Does that mean that they're not competent to uh, do a financial audit? Um, but I think the, the marketplace would be the ultimate sanction. But you, you've got to have a clean sweep at the top. And this is not a change in culture. This is a complete, total, and utter uh, everything uh, old is new again um, situation. So I wanted to take a little break before the next story. Uh, just got a scoop from Just Anti-Corruption at Maine Justice. Uh, Kelly Swanson reports that Louis Free has been appointed the Walmart monitor. As many people know, he was a former director of the FBI, and uh, he's been appointed as the monitor in the Walmart case. He will be supported by his risk management firm, Free Group International Solutions. And this is not new territory for him before. In 2010, he was chosen to be the monitor for Daimler after the company entered into an $185 million settlement with U.S. authorities. So uh, we'll see if Louis Free is a, a big, badass monitor uh, like you're needing at uh, KPMG. This one seems to be a much narrower uh, remit. We'll find that out when we study the documents. But um, next up, Tom, why don't you tell us about the role of the WTO in global anti-corruption enforcement? So, Jay, this comes from uh, Luciana Silviera, I believe is how she uh, pronounces her name. And Luciana is a really uh, interesting sort of commentator, uh, thought leader in the anti-corruption space. She is a Brazilian, and she did a Fulbright scholarship at, uh, I believe, George Washington University. And it, part of the Fulbright was a work on a PhD uh, looking at uh, anti-corruption, anti-compliance, but from a, a really a trade perspective, not really the legal perspective that I came out of or perhaps the compliance perspective that you and I are now in. And this article just sort of is sort of a teaser, a part of the work she did. And she really um, thinks that the World Trade Organization uh, has a uh, bigger role in anti-bribery, anti-corruption than they have used in the past. And she talks about the use of multilateral trade facilitation agreements uh, for uh, the purposes of redefining uh, or rather reducing bureaucratic border red tape that gives opportunities for corruption. Obviously, uh, anytime you cross a border, whether you're a person with passport control or goods or services, um, you're subject to, uh, unfortunately, oftentimes having to pay a bribe to get in. Uh, in the U.S., those are called facilitation payments, but uh, whatever you may call them in the U.S., they're still bribes. So customs activities is a big area uh, that she'd like to see um, 
the WTO fight. And she really has, uh, I think, one of the most unique voices in compliance because she looks at it from such a unique angle. And, you know, to have a Brazilian analyze the U.S. legal system and come up with this, I thought was just a a very, very insightful way uh, to look at things. So check it out. It's in the the FCPA blog. um, And check out the rest of her writings as well. And Jay, uh, in part 1,304,555 cubed of our ongoing series on banks behaving badly, we have even more stories. You want to tell us about those? Yeah, it seems like we these have been two of our faves as of late. Uh, Swedbank suspends CEO and CFO of Estonian unit amid money laundering probe. And late on Monday, they suspended, as I just said, the CEO and the CFO. Uh, Swedbank came under scrutiny in February after a Swedish broadcaster reported that billions of dollars of illicit funds may have passed through the the bank's Estonian branch in a link to money laundering for Danske Bank. Uh, Former chief executive Brigitte Bonnesen was ousted in March over the scandal and then Chairman uh, Lars Edermark quit shortly after. Um, basically, as previously committed, communicated, Swedbank had initiated an in-depth internal investigation with the help of external resources to investigate historical anti-money laundering compliance, and Swedbank will continue to continuously act upon the conclusions in the investigations. Next up, Deutsche Bank faces criminal investigations for potential money laundering. Uh, Federal authorities are investigating whether Deutsche Bank uh, complied with laws meant to stop money laundering and other crimes, the latest government examination, potential misconduct at one of the world's largest and most troubled banks. The investigation includes a review of Deutsche Bank's handling of so-called suspicious activity reports, SARS, S-A-R-S, that its employees prepared about possible problematic transactions, some linked to President Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Uh, This is just one element of separate but overlapping government examinations. The FBI recently contacted a lawyer for Deutsche Bank whistleblower, Tammy McFadden, who publicly criticized the company's anti-money laundering systems. She talked about these flag transactions, the SARS reports, how they were ignored by upper management. And um, now I guess, uh, towards the end of the article, it says there is no indication that Kushner Companies is under investigation. The Federal Bank's Secrecy Act requires financial institutions to alert the government they suspect that transactions involving criminal proceeds or being used for illegal um, purposes. And as a cap on this, it says in Jacksonville, Deutsche Bank's anti-financial crime staff works in a white three-story building surrounded by serene palm trees. The FBI has a field office just down the road, clearly visible from the bank's office. Employees recently have taken to joking that when the FBI raids their offices, they will be able to see the agents coming. So that has been this week's episode of Banks Behaving Badly. So uh, 
Jay Navex released a, a just a fabulous first of its kind ethics and compliance benchmark report. Um, it's a very lengthy document. Uh, we've linked to it as well as Jacqueline Jager's articles in Compliance Week. Could, could you maybe give a little tease as to what uh, what there is in the report? Yeah. Uh, so as you said, this is from Jacqueline Jager over Compliance Week. And on Tuesday, Navix Global published a first-of-its-kind ethics and compliance benchmark report that provides in a single consolidated document comprehensive research into multiple disciplines of an ethics and compliance program. The report pulls from 963 survey respondents who influence or manage the organization's ethics and compliance programs. In the past, Navix has defined maturity uh, looking across four disciplines, which are policy management, training, hotline and incident management, and third-party risk management. But now, according to the report, robust and effective ethics and compliance programs share some of the following traits, adequate funding and staffing, risk-based priorities and training, agile policy and procedures management that keeps pace with regulatory and industry changes, a reliable internal reporting and case management system, comprehensive approach to third-party risk management, and continuous improvement based on learning. We had an opportunity to hear about uh, several of these uh, studies because uh, when we were in Boston last week, we happened to have um, uh, Carrie from Navex who was there, and she did just a great job sharing this information. Uh, just one of the other key things I wanted to touch is one of the real significant uh, factors to look at is whether or not you have the buy-in of management. And the report specifically states organizations with strong executive backing show greater success, more maturity, and adoption of ENC technologies. So it's uh, some wonderful research. And as Tom said, um, we link to it in the show notes. Uh, next up. We've got something uh, from our friends at Corporate Compliance, uh, and especially written by Hanzo's Jim Murphy. So what is Jim worrying about with Slack? So uh, full disclosure, I uh, do marketing and consulting work with Hanzo, and I know Jim uh, Murray. Uh, but he wrote a really interesting, Murphy rather, uh, he wrote a very interesting article that, uh, frankly, I was uh, not aware of uh, many of the points he raised. Hanzo does uh, sort of e-discovery and, and investigations, but really from the technology side. And he talked about, Murphy talked about the dangers of Slack, uh, utilizing Slack as a communications tool. Uh, I have used this upon occasion. I usually use Zoom quite a bit more, but uh, he raised uh, three points that first, Slack is frequently off the radar for a corporation. Employees can sign up for Slack and they're... Uh, um, company may not even know they're using it. It's a communication that is uh, <clears throat> unlike, it's unstructured, uh, both in terms of the format, sort of the electronic format that you might utilize for uh, email and that e-discovery tools look for, but it's also unstructured in terms of its sort of uh, the thoughts that are raised. And it's, it's more like a conversation and that if, uh, email, uh, Jim points out that uh, most of the time you can figure out what an email means in terms of the context, who sent it, who got it, title, 
uh, and what's in it. Slack is often uh, sort of one-sentence thoughts that people are putting out. And so uh, he raises the, the question that uh, companies need to be aware uh, of what um, their employees are doing and if they're using policies or rather uh, social media tools to communicate that are outside the, the uh, corporate uh, family uh, that, that needs to be uh, reined in and develop policies, channels, and procedures around uh, the way messaging apps can uh, be added. So, uh, Jay, next up, uh, our friend uh, Jeff Kaplan over at the Conflict of Interest blog, he read a, a really interesting article that I've read as well in uh, this month's Harvard Business Review, and it's how to design an ethical organization. And he says there are three key points. The first is that um, it needs to state the explicit values uh, of the company. Second, that it is designed uh, considering the thoughts employees have while making judgments. And the third is uh, incentives. So um, it's a relatively short article, but it, what the reason I liked it is it really focused on structure. And that's not something we talk about uh, as much in compliance, but what's the structure of your compliance program? So good stuff uh, from Jeff Kaplan. And frankly, uh, I'm sorry he beat me to it, but uh, it's on my list of uh, articles to write in the next week or two. So next up, uh, we've got something from our friends at the uh, NY School, New York University School of Law, and the article's entitled, Wolfliness and Negligence are Mutually Exclusive Standards of Liability. The authors of the piece are Greg Morvillo and Christine Hanley, and uh, basically they're taking a look at um, a case that was in front of the D.C. Circuit Court, Robert Group versus the SEC. And the D.C. Circuit essentially held that willfulness is willfulness and negligence and neg is negligence. And uh, the author started off by comparing that to something that uh, Rudyard Kipling famously quipped was, oh, east is east and west is west and never shall the twain shall meet. So uh, I guess basically within one decision, you had certain activities of the defendants and it was characterized as being negligence. But later on in that same ruling, you had a similar type of activity that was uh, deemed willfulness. So the court realized the conflict between how something could be willfulness and negligent at the same time and decided to go with the negligence standard instead because willfulness uh, included intent. So it sounds a little bit confusing, but what is going to be interesting is how this may apply to other SEC civil enforcement actions. So uh, we'll be watching that. And Tom, anything you want to straighten out for my lack of being an official lawyer on that one? Nope, nope. You did, uh, did a good job. Um, Jay, I would like to uh, encourage you and all of our listeners to welcome Dylan Tokar, I hope I pronounced that right, uh, to uh, the compliance community. Dylan has joined the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. Uh, we've uh, linked to his Twitter notification. We've also cited to his email address. Uh, he would love to hear from you, but I would encourage you just to shoot him an email and, and welcome him. Welcome him. 
Um, I had the privilege to know Sam Rubenfeld, Ben DiPietro, Joe Palazzo, Chris Matthews, who were previously at the uh, Risk and Compliance Journal or its predecessor, Corruption Currents. They were all great guys, and uh, they're there to move the ball forward on bribery and corruption. They're not looking for you know inside information, and they'll be completely fair with you. Uh, so I would encourage you just to welcome Dylan to the community. He's got some big shoes to follow, but uh, if, if the Wall Street Journal hired him, I have a fair amount of uh, confidence that uh, you know he'll he'll step into the very big shoes that currently exist there. And if the name looks familiar to some of you folks, because you may have seen his byline uh, previously, uh, Dylan wrote for Just Anti Corruption at Maine Justice, and a lot of those folks that um, Tom just mentioned, Chris Matthews, uh, Aruna Viswanatha. I hope I didn't butcher that too much. They all cut their teeth too, at um, Just Anti-Corruption. So, Dylan, welcome aboard at the Wall Street Journal, and I'll ping you on your Twitter account when I get a chance. So, Jay, does one size fit all when it comes to monitorships? The answer is a definitive no. And how do we know that? Because basically, one size does not fit your compliance program, and neither would one size fit your monitorship. So, um, one of the things that a lot of people tend to worry about, not only in the world of monitors, but in other things, whether you're looking at investigations, is is there sometimes uh, a potential for mission creep? And one of the things that a monitor really has to kind of lay out at the beginning with his client is understanding the mission of the monitorship. And the starting point is understanding what is the monitor there to do? And just like we were talking about Walmart a couple minutes ago by having a very narrow focus. Uh, when the monitor gets in there, he really needs to have an understanding with the clients to understand what they're trying to achieve with that monitorship. And, um, you know, basically uh, they need to find a way to get people to feel involved. And one of the things we looked at was uh, in a situation where you have companies that uh, anything, anybody in the extractive industry, anything that deals with heavy machinery, they always have a safety moment. And this company decided that they also wanted to have an ethics moment simultaneously with the um, <clears throat> safety moment. And one of the things that came up was that a client wanted to give baseball tickets to one of the employees. And the employees realized it was a conflict of interest, but didn't know how to go back and, and how to thank them, but, you know, how to move on. So they had a dialogue there for the company. And what followed in the course of this compliance moment was the company's employees had an opportunity to become part of the process. So in terms of figuring out what your monitor is going to do with you, there really needs to be some buy-in. But there, at the beginning of this thing, there needs to be a lot of discussion so you can understand what you're trying to achieve during the uh, terms of the monitorship. So, um, Jay, I had a five-part podcast series sponsored by Ascent Compliance this week on emerging regulatory challenges in supply chain management. Took a look at the um, uh, uh, HTS, Human Trafficking and Slavery Landscape, instituting a broader risk management program, your CSR value proposition, uh, what used to be called conflict minerals is now called responsible minerals, and then scaling up a uh, compliance program to meet the challenge, meet uh, challenges going forward. Also, I'm pleased to announce or at least note 
that I am keynoting next week's University of Miami, Miami Conference on Compliance Across Borders. I've linked to registration and information. And finally, if you happen to be in Paris on July 3rd or 4th, uh, I am speaking there, keynoting the Circle of Compliance Forum. So uh, it's going to be a busy couple of weeks. And, of course, we've got the ACFE uh, National Conference next week, uh, starting Sunday, in fact, in Austin. So going to be a busy week, but some great stuff. Very good stuff. And uh, I want to thank you, Tom. Last week when we were in Boston, uh, you joined me at Fenway Park on Wednesday night. And uh, since that, I think the Sox have won something like six out of seven or seven out of eight. So I just think it's very generous for one of the Astros' biggest boosters to be uh, sharing the wins uh, with somebody in the ALE. So thank you so much. Well, and I assume that since uh, we are in New York City to play the Yankees, you're actually going to pull for the uh, Astros this weekend. You know it. But I would be pulling for them anyhow. On that note, why don't you take us home? Of course. So, uh, everyone, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 159, for the week ending June 21st, 2019. The formerly known as the KPMG train wreck and forthcomingly known as the Walmart Settles Edition. Thanks so much for listening in and have a great weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions on any of the stories, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This Week in FCPA is the only weekly wrap-up of top FCPA compliance and ethics stories. However, there's a daily show called The Daily Compliance News that I put out each day. Also, if you're a Star Trek aficionado, I hope you'll check out my summer series, Star Trekking Through Compliance, Star Trek, the original series, and the intersection of compliance. It's on a 79-episode run. We're up to episode uh, 20. So check it out. I know you'll enjoy it. This Week in FCPA is produced by the Compliance Podcast Network and now a part of C-Suite Radio. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.